When you're a teacher, there are things that happen that you don't quite expect. And as teachers, you know, sometimes teachers get a bad rap because they can be, you know, tough or mean or that type of thing. And oftentimes when it comes to tests and other things like that, that kids are always thinking that there's a trick to the questions, you know, true and false, you know, does is mean is, and, you know, these type of things as you go through. And, and there was an occasion back uh, in the late 90s where I was teaching a Bible to uh, 86 different kids. I had 7th through 12th grade, and I taught the same subject uh, I was teaching Genesis, but I was teaching at different levels, uh, 7th and 8th grade, ninth and 10th grade, 11th, 12th grade, and uh, generally gave them all the same test, uh, a little bit easier for the 7th and 8th graders, but uh, more difficult for the 11th and 12th grade. But I thought, you know, okay, it was the Christmas season, and it would be a wonderful thing to give them a bonus or two, and, and give them a bonus that was, you know, obviously a bonus, and no one could miss, and and possibly miss, and so... The bonus question that I put on that test was this. What color was George Washington's white horse? I had 86 students. I had 85 that got it right. I had one that did not get it right. In fact, when we were grading the test and we got done, I had one student raise their hands and say uh, this. They said, well, what if they didn't put down white? Of course, you know, they're you know, hinting at the fact that it's not the right answer, but uh, I was like, okay, so what was the answer? And they said, brown. And of course, all the class was just kind of like, you know, looking around to go, who, who did this? And there was one young man in the back, and he just kind of was like, you know, looking around like, what, what was wrong with that answer? And so I just, just said to him, I said, Chris, I said, uh, you know, what, why, why a brown horse? And he goes, well, you know, when you asked the question and you asked it, I thought it might be a trick or something like that. And so I thought back to uh, pictures that I had seen of George Washington and the picture that I remembered that George Washington was on a brown horse. So I put down brown because that's what uh, I thought that he had. And I thought it was a trick question. And so I put down brown. And I was like, okay, well, that, that makes sense. And so I gave him a bonus because he actually had thought through his answer and whatever else and, 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 and you know, to survive the laughing of everyone else because it's so obvious it was if George Washington has a white horse, it's a white horse. But he had thought through it and come to the conclusion and said, well, you know, I, you know he rode a brown horse. You say, what does that have to do with what we're going to look at this morning? I want you to turn your back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 and the passage that we looked at this morning. When you go through the story in the book of Matthew and you look at uh, what is going on here, there are different stories that Matthew tells, but each one of them has a prophecy attached to it. And as you go through it, some of the prophecies make sense. 
For instance, as uh, you go through uh, the whole passage when it talks in uh, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, you have this passage where Jesus is born of Mary and then it says it might be fulfilled of the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which Emmanuel means with us God or God with us. You're like, well, okay, that, that passage makes sense. Okay, you know, that prophecy you know, is obvious uh, when you look at the Old Testament that it is hinting at something supernatural and future that's going to happen. And you're like, okay, that, that prophecy makes sense. Or there's another prophecy when you get to Matthew chapter 2 and the wise men show up in town. And the question is, is there any reason why people would be coming and looking for the king of the Jews? You know, where, why are they looking for this? And where would we find this king of the Jews that they're describing? And, and the religious individuals come up with a passage from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 2. You find it in our story in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. And when you go back to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, it makes sense. It's looking forward, and you're going, okay, this is a passage that's talking about one that's going to come from the line of David, and he's going to rule the nations, Israel and the nations, and he's going to do that. It makes all the sense in the world. But there's three prophecies as we're going to look at this week, next week, and the week after that, that when you read them in context and then read them in their original context in the Old Testament, they don't make sense. You know, there are times where you, if you're, you know, faithfully reading the Scriptures and whatever, there are times where you go, oh, hey, it says as it is written. I wonder where that's at. Well, let me go back and look at where it was found in the Scriptures, and you read the passage in the Old Testament, and you go, oh, okay, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. I can understand that. But we're here in the end of Matthew have several stories that the prophecy is not the one that you would have chosen, nor does it even in its original context make any sense at all why Matthew chose that prophecy, that passage from the Old Testament to say, well, this is what's happening here in the story. For us, it's the phrase, uh, when you look at uh, what we read this morning in Matthew 2, verse 11 through 15, you get to the end, and it says in verse number 15, out of Egypt have I called my son. Okay? And we're going to get to that prophecy. But it doesn't make any sense until it's explained much like that young man finally explaining his answer and how he got to it it began to make sense why he put that down well it's going to take us a little bit of work here this morning but hopefully it will be uh, valuable for you to work through and go why was that used that passage in the old testament used to describe the story we have of jesus being taken down to egypt because it doesn't seem to make any sense let's just talk through the details of the story and there are details that we're probably well familiar with but in this story you're beginning to see this that the wise men come they've got these great gifts and what they are is really a a a uh, well a precursor to what's going to happen at christ's second coming 
Because we know from the book of Isaiah that at Christ's second coming, when he comes to rule and reign, the nations are going to come and bring gifts just like these wise men brought. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is going to be gifts that are brought to Christ when he rules and reigns the second time he comes. And you have this precursor, these wise men coming and recognizing there's this Messiah and they're worshiping him. And you go, okay, uh, this is a fantastic part of the story. But it sadly is one that you get to the story and you realize there's danger and tragedy in this story. Because the wise men, as soon as they do this, we find that in verse number 12, they were warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod. Uh, What you find throughout the story of Matthew, besides the fact that there's a whole bunch of prophecies that take place, that at least four times, and then one time with the wise men, four times with uh, Joseph, that God uses a dream. You know, times uh, God would use uh, to, to reveal Himself to people in the Old Testament time period, and this is kind of a transition time from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that God would talk to people directly. Or they would have what is known as visions. You go, what are visions? Well, the person would be walking around and would see something in the events that they were in, and they would see it. They wouldn't be sleeping. They would see certain things as they would go about daily activities, and God would communicate that way. Those were known as visions. But on some occasions, as you see in the Old Testament, right on to this point, that God reveals His plan and what He wants done through dreams. What we find in this whole story is that God is in control of what's going on here. He is actively, directly intervening and saying, I need you to do this, and you should be doing this, and you should be doing this. With the wise men, he does this. He goes, you need to depart another way. Don't go back to Herod. And what they do is they do this immediately. They leave. And then you see uh, in verse uh, number twelve or 13, And they departed, and behold, the angel Lord appeared unto Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and mother and flee to Egypt. So here's another dream where you have God indicating you need to do this and playing a role in the story very obviously. It's not that these things happen accidentally. Okay, some parts of the story does seem to happen. It's just these things occur. But in this case, very direct. God is a part of this. Here's these dreams. You need to be doing certain things. God's providentially in control of what's going on here. Moving the events along and directly moving these events along. Now, as you see the story, it doesn't, to us, make immediate sense when you have this story and joseph is told this to take the young child and the mother and i will say this uh recognize the fact that the child was more important than the mother normally when you talked about mother and child mother would come first and child would come second but as you read the story it's very clear take the young child and his mother which indicates the importance of who's more important than the other one The child is more important than the mother in this case. You go, why? Because he's a son of God. Mary is not the important one here. Uh, It is that you take this child and his mother, flee into Egypt. This is kind of an event that you go, well, it's a a retreat. As you read the story, the the, uh, command is this, is that you take the child and that you flee almost you run uh, to a different location 
that they depart and you see this phrase come up again and again depart uh, depart 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 it's almost like they're retreating that somehow god's failed here but realize this when it comes to battle retreat is not a bad thing in fact sometimes retreat's not a failure it's just a tactical decision You're going to find in Christ's ministry that times he is going to depart and withdraw from different individuals and different groups. It's part of God's planning here. And God just simply says this, I want you to withdraw and I want you to go to a place called Egypt. Egypt was an ideal location for these uh, individuals to flee to. You go, why? Well, there's a lot of things going on in Egypt. First of all, Egypt had a huge Jewish population. In the city of Alexandria alone, you had probably, as indicated by Josephus the historian, almost a million Jews in that city. I mean, this is outside the land of Israel. You have a location where Jews are located, and you would had uh, there, uh, and you uh, have indicators of this in many different places, many synagogues. A vast library that the Jews are ones that are contributing to this library that is there. Uh, And so there would have been a population of people that Mary and Joseph and Jesus could easily fit into, be there, be around individuals that would be familiar with who they are and their culture. Secondarily, to go to Egypt was a smart idea because the individual that you're going to see later Herod the Great, I mean, if you just had the Bible, you'd say Herod the Horrible. But this individual had no jurisdiction in Egypt. I mean, the whole region is under Roman control, but Herod did not have a rulership in the land of Egypt. He couldn't do whatever he wanted to do. You say, well, did they need to flee Herod? Well, the next story that we'll look at next week makes it very clear. Herod is willing to murder children. Murder innocents without even questioning his decision. He does it in an instant that he is commanding that children be murdered. So was it a good thing that they leave? Yes, because there is a real danger. And so to go to Egypt would get them out of the way of where this Herod the Great would be at and would put them in a place that was nearby Israel and was safe. And, and think about this, this had been a common practice for people if they were trying to escape Israel, they would go to Egypt. You had the king, uh, well, not the king at the time, but a man by the name of Jeroboam who was prophesied to rule the ten northern tribes. And uh, this prophet came to him, and when it was found out that he was going to be king of the ten northern tribes that had been prophesied, the king at the present time, Rehoboam, tried to get him, and so what does he do? He flees to Egypt. You find others fleeing to Egypt. Uh, You read in Jeremiah 43, you have a prophet that flees to Egypt. Now, it's against his will, but there was this idea that you could find safety in Egypt. So this whole idea of going to Egypt and finding safety is not something that was unusual throughout the history of the Old Testament. Finding refuge and safety in a country outside the land of Israel. And so you just look at the story, you find that it's kind of a, a withdrawal, but it is an intentional withdrawal by God, and you find them in Egypt where they would have been around people that would have known them and they would have been safe. 
So then you get to this end of the story that says just simply this, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. You're going, oh, well, there's a passage of Scripture talking about the fact that Jesus would flee to Egypt, the Messiah would have to flee to Egypt, and, and that the Lord would bring him out of there. Okay, so where is this at? And I want us to turn to the passage where you will find this, and it's the Old Testament passage of Hosea, chapter 11 and verse number 1. Now for us, uh, coming to a passage like this, you may not be very familiar with Hosea. But Hosea is uh, the, the story as you read it is the first of the minor prophets and it's a lengthy uh, book for a minor prophet. But Hosea was a prophet who was writing to the nation of Israel, especially the ten northern tribes, before they had been hauled off into captivity, before they had been uh, drug away by Assyria. And he's writing and preaching against them, and his whole life was a testimony against the nation of Israel. Because when you start off the book of Hosea, Hosea is commanded to marry a woman that is going to run away from him that's going to become an adulterer. And God says, I want you to marry this individual knowing that this is going to happen. And so here you have uh, Hosea marrying this woman by the name of Gomer, and uh, she does just as was predicted. She runs from him. She goes and lives with other individuals. And what Hosea is supposed to do is to go and buy her out of slavery. She gets to the point where she uh, has gotten herself into debts and the like and cannot get free from the people that she's gone to be with. And Hosea is supposed to go and take care of this and bring her back into his home and care for her. You go, why would God do that? Because God was using him as an illustration of what God had been doing for the nation of Israel for generations God had done wonderful things by choosing the nation of Israel. And we looked at this last week with Abraham, where God chooses Abraham and his descendants to have a special purpose, to have a special relationship with him, to be people who magnified God to the world around them. They have a special opportunity. And what God does is takes care of them over and over again. And we go through the book of Genesis, you'll find God protecting oftentimes these people from themselves their own destructive habits and their own destructive activities. God protects them, but God gets them down to Egypt and then brings them back out of Egypt to a land of blessing and promise, and God puts them in that land that flows with milk and honey, and you say, what happened? They weren't happy with God. They look at all the people around them, the Canaanites that they had not removed, and they see the worship that they're participating in of Baal and Ashtaroth and these uh, gods and goddesses, and they go, we like what they're doing. We like their festivals. We like their activities. We like what they're doing. And they start taking up the practices of the Canaanites, and what you find is that God is having to come with prophet after prophet after prophet. I mean, you think about the most prominent individual that uh, is a prophet, and we know his activities, a man by the name of Elijah. 
Elijah who comes and defies the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. I mean, this is, this is a, a whole national gathering. It says, who will you serve? The Lord, is he God or is Baal, is he God? And this whole battle that uh, takes place on this mountain in one way, it's a very one lopsided battle, but uh, it's, it's fought there. And the nation of Israel for a temporary time goes, well, the Lord, he is God after everything happens. But you, you very quickly read they've gone back to their old ways of worshiping idols. And they've done this. And you read the book of Hosea and God just simply says, listen, I have stretched my hands out in love to you over and over and over again. And I have given you the best of everything and the best of relationships. And what you do is time and time again, you're going off to other lovers. And there's this play that both you have God being kind of a, uh, a husband that has done all sorts of things for his wife or a father in relation to his children that has given his children wonderful things and the children want nothing to do with him. And the book of Hosea for 10 chapters lays this out. Just declares the fact that God had done all of these things, but here's how the people of the nation of Israel responded. Not as you would expect, in love and favor and adoration of God. No, they don't want Him. They want something else. And so you get to those first 10 chapters and you kind of go, okay, this is, you know, God is saying this, but you get to chapter 11 and verse number one, there's a tone change in the whole of the book where God just simply says, listen, I'm going to operate out of love and no matter what you do, I am finally in the end going to do something for you that you couldn't even imagine, even though you've run from me over and over again. And you get to Hosea chapter 11 and verse number one, that section of restoration and hope in the book of Hosea starts this way when israel was a child i loved him and called my son out of egypt kind of going okay what does that have to do with christ the messiah because to this point there is no hint when you look at that passage of scripture that christ is being talked about the messiah none in fact to this point as you look at uh, the book of hosea the word son and child has been used repeatedly and it's been talking about the nation of israel that has wandered off and fled from god it's always talking about a son that has run away So how in the world can you come to a passage like this and say, oh, yes, this is talking about the Messiah? Because if I was to just simply preach a passage like this and come to this after preaching all of Hosea and coming to this and going, oh, hey, this is talking about Christ, you'd go, no, it's talking about the nation of Israel and God delivering the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That God had done this in the past and that God is going to restore them in the future. He's going to do something for them. It has nothing to do with Christ. Well, this is where you go, okay, what and why would Matthew 
through the moving of the Holy Spirit. Matthew's not doing this on his own. Matthew is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this passage down as a fulfillment of what God was doing in bringing his son to Egypt and then bringing him back out. You say, well, how do we do this? Is this passage a direct prophecy about Christ? And the way to take this and understand what Matthew is doing here is just simply first to start this way. Did God deliver Israel out of Egypt? The answer is yes. We've got a whole book of Exodus that relays to us how God did this. Through great miracles, great power, uh, through dreams and visions, communicating certain things and doing this, that God did this. But Think about how the nation of Israel got to the book of Exodus. Was it accidental how they got down to Egypt? You know, was it just suddenly they were there and, oh, we're in Egypt now? No, you read through, and we will get to this as we go through the book of Genesis. When you read the book of Genesis, God's planning for them to go down to Egypt. In fact, when God makes a covenant with Abram in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 where he promises and has this agreement that he goes through, a treaty that he makes with Abraham, he tells him this, that your descendants are going to go down to the land of Egypt and be there for 430 years in the land of Egypt. And you say, for what purpose? He makes very clear that in that time that the fullness of the sin of the Canaanites will be full at that time, that they're going to be sinning as much as they possibly can, and God's going to finally say, okay, enough, I'm going to bring my people out of Egypt to be my instrument of judgment to the Canaanites. But you're looking some almost 500 years before that event where they go down to Egypt, and you say, well, how do they get down to Egypt? Well, uh, it's an event that takes place. It's a bad event. You go, what's that? There's a famine in the land. But it just so happens that one of the descendants of Abraham, a young man by the name of Joseph, is now uh, the second in command to Pharaoh, and he is there, and God has planted him there. You go, was it accidentally he was planted there? No, think about the dreams that Joseph had that was declaring the fact that he would be worshipped by his brothers and his mother and his father, that he would be. It wasn't accidental that Joseph ended up down there, even though from human perspective it's a tragedy that he got down there, sold by his brothers into slavery. But you have the story where they go down to the land of Egypt, the brothers finding uh, what they need there because there's abundance in that land even though there's a famine going on and they go there and the long and the short of it is this, is that God uh, through his uh, in communicating to Jacob that it is okay for the family to go down to Egypt, the whole family moves down there in a time of difficulty where there's a famine in the land of Canaan. And they're there for 400 years. And you think about what happens in that time of 400 years. What happens? You get to the point in the story where the Pharaoh is getting anxious about them. Because the population has gotten to a point where it's probably 2 million people. 
And he's saying they could overrun our country if they wanted to. These Israelites, these descendants of Israel, Jacob, are here. They could overrun us. What we need to do is decrease the surplus population. So what do they do? He comes up with a plan. If you have children that are born and it's a female, fine. But if you have a child that is born that's born to an Israelite and is a male, what you're supposed to do is take that child and cast them into the Nile River. I mean, there is an evil king in that story, much like the story of King Herod trying to kill the innocents. You have in the story of Exodus a king who is trying to kill innocents. Hebrew children. And so when you look at the story of the nation of Israel and the things that happened to Christ, there are similarities between the story of what happens to Israel and what happens to Christ. In fact, have you ever thought about this? When Jesus starts off his ministry, he's baptized and he goes off into the... He's led by the Spirit. The Spirit of God actually leads him there. He goes off into the wilderness for what? 40 days. And he's there for 40 days and he goes through that whole thing and he doesn't eat you go, why? Because God's ultimately going to provide him what he needs to eat because you get to the end of the story and Satan's trying to tempt him, turn these stones into bread, and that's not God's plan because at the end of this temptation of 40 days and 40 nights, you're going to have the angels come and feed Christ. That's going to be God's way of taking care of him. Well, you think about the nation of Israel. 40 years they wander in a wilderness and God's going to take care of them. And all of their needs. And so as you look at, and just from from a perspective, there are similarities between what happens to the nation of Israel and what happens to Christ at the beginning of his life and ministry. Okay, there's similar things that happen. But you go, is that really enough to say, okay, what you have is that Christ is identifying, Jesus the Messiah is identifying with the nation of Israel and has things that are similar that happens to them that happen to him. And I will have to say this, is that it's more than just that, that Christ, if you want to put it this way, is the ultimate Israelite. In fact, he could be representative, or if you wanted someone to represent the nation of Israel, it would be him. And in the Old Testament, as you go through it, there seems to be a connection that the nation of Israel is going to be identified eventually by their Messiah. Just as a group of people are oftentimes eventually identified by their leader, your leader is the one that kind of represents you and he kind of comes to be your person. He is, you know, that. He is that country. Our president of the United States is ultimately our representative to the whole of the rest of the world. That's what people think of for the most part when it comes to uh, our country is what our president is. We're identified with him. And what you have in the Old Testament is that there is this play that you have Israel, who's ultimately the Messiah, is going to represent the nation of Israel and going to be the greatest of the Israelites. 
You can see this, and we're not going to go through the passages themselves, but in Isaiah chapter 40 to 66, there is a series of what are known as servant songs. The servant of the Lord. And there's these songs sung about the servant of the Lord. And as you go through, sometimes you read that the servant of the Lord is the nation of Israel. And sometimes the servant of the Lord is a Cyrus who accomplishes the purposes. He's a complete pagan, but he accomplishes the purposes of God in delivering people. And you get to Isaiah chapter 53, which is in the center of all those servant songs, you have this story about one who's stricken and smitten of God. And by whose stripes we shall be healed. Right in the middle of this, you have very clearly a passage talking about the Messiah. One who's going to suffer for sins and be able to carry away sins. Be able to do this. And so as you go throughout that book of Isaiah, you at times have to figure out, is it talking about the nation of Israel? Is it talking about the Messiah? Because it's almost interchangeable in the thinking of the prophets. The nation of Israel is so tied into what eventually is going to be accomplished in the Messiah. And think about what we said last week when it came to Abraham, that through him and his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Initially, you would take that and go, oh, that's through the nation of Israel that the nations of the world are going to be blessed. But as you read through and follow the Scripture out, you get down to a point where you're going, no, it's not the nation of Israel itself. It's this individual out of the nation of Israel who is going to save the people. And when it came to the story in the book of uh, Exodus... Think about this, if the nation of Israel had been wiped out, you would have never gotten to the point where the Messiah could have represented the nation of Israel and accomplished all of these things. And so when it comes to this story, you kind of go, well, wait a second, he's kind of taking this thing out of Egypt, I call, or out of Egypt, I called my son Israel... And it's applying to the fact, okay, yes, God did deliver deliver the nation of Israel out of Egypt, but he also delivered his Messiah, the one who's going to save and be a blessing to all nations. He saved them out of Egypt. I mean, I do want to put it this way. Understand that this is not a, a, a completely foreign concept, even to New Testament times. That the head individual identifies as the body itself. You go, do you have an illustration of that? I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we have the church that's now started. And the church's start is not without opposition. In this church, you find individuals who are Jews. You have some that aren't Jews. They're being followers of this one Jesus who's died. And you have this new body called the church. And the head of that church is Christ. You find that in Ephesians. It's very clear that the head of that church, the head of the body, is Christ himself. But you have this story in Acts chapter 9 where you have this one who has made it his goal in life to persecute all Christians in the church. He's trying to destroy the church of God. He makes that comment later. That was his desire, was to destroy the church. 
And he's got paperwork that he is going to go to Damascus outside of the land of Israel, but he's got paperwork that allows him to go and haul Christians from those regions and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial and be able to do that. And so you find in verse 3 of Acts chapter 9, here's Paul, he's got soldiers with him, he's about to come to Damascus. Verse 3, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Wait a second. To this point, if you think about it, he hasn't done anything to Christ. In fact, Christ has risen and ascended into heaven. He's been there for a while. Paul's been hauling off women and men, husbands and wives, parents uh, and children, hauling them off to prison and being okay with the execution and their death. He's been fine with that. And he's been hauling off individuals and doing this, but he's never had any interaction with Christ. But when Christ confronts Paul on that road to Damascus, he says this, why are you persecuting me? You're going, well, wait a second. He's persecuting parts of the church, individual members of that church body that's making up the church. Those individuals being hauled off to prison, they're the ones suffering the persecution. They're the ones suffering the hurt. But here you have Jesus identifying himself as the church. You're persecuting me. And so here you have in the New Testament a time where it's very clear the Lord identifies himself as the church. So when you think back to the Old Testament when it says this, that I have delivered my son out of Egypt, I've delivered Israel out of Egypt, that you could go, okay, the nation of Israel is represented by its chief individual, Christ. Yes, he was delivered out of Egypt. Not only was he delivered in the book of Exodus when the whole nation of Israel was taken out of Egypt, but God just magnifies that when he sends his son to Egypt in this story and then brings him out of Egypt. He is replaying the story as the chief representative of the nation of Israel that he was delivered out of Egypt. Now, did Hosea recognize the fact that he was writing about the Messiah when he wrote Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1? I would say probably not. But the prophets did have an understanding when they were writing that there were things that they didn't quite understand completely that they were writing about. In fact, Peter, when he was talking about the Old Testament prophets in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 10, he says this, talking about the prophets, they wrote of which salvation the prophets they inquired of and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace of God that should come unto you, searching what and what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow unto whom, speaking of the prophets again, it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things 
even the angels desire to look into. Uh, Peter makes very clear, there were times where the prophets would write certain things and they recognized they didn't recognize everything that was being written there and the implications of everything like that, but it had something to do with the salvation and the good news that would be for a future generation. And so when Hosea, moved by the Holy Spirit, gets to Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, at that point he pens that statement, thinking probably it has to deal with a nation of Israel's deliverance from Egypt in the book of Exodus, not realizing that it had further implications, greater implications, that this was a message about the Messiah who would be delivered out of Egypt. I mean, one has put it this way, the quote that we find Matthew using from Hosea 11 and verse 1 is not an accident. This writer put it this way, Israel in its childhood was already set apart for the world's ultimate blessing and was described as, uh, to Pharaoh as God's firstborn son in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22. God, by providence, uh, uh, by God's providence, the nation of Israel had taken refuge in Egypt, but must return to its own land to fulfill its calling. Therefore, although the nation of Israel had been threatened with extinction through, among many other things, the massacre of its infant sons, it was miraculously delivered. Not surprisingly, the infant Christ who summed up in his person all that Israel was called to be was likewise threatened and delivered. And although the details differed, the early pattern was reenacted in its essentials, ending with God's Son restored to God's land to fulfill the task marked out for him. And think of it this way, the nation of Israel leaves Egypt to go into the land of Canaan to fulfill what it's supposed to do in the land that it's been called to do. And here you have the Messiah who is brought in from the land of Egypt to accomplish the task, which will ultimately be dying on a cross, but rising again from the dead to accomplish the purposes of God. What you have here is a prophecy that's pointing to the fact of God's providence, but that there's a purpose in what God is doing throughout the story. It's just starting off the book of Matthew and going, okay, God's got a plan here, and it's not a haphazard plan. He's been planning for this and showing it for thousands of years, and suddenly you're getting to this fact that, okay, I'm delivering my son out of Egypt like I did for the nation of Israel. I've done this for my son, and he's going to come and accomplish a task that no one else can accomplish, only he can, and that is dying for the sins of mankind by bringing them salvation by his own death on the cross and so when you see this prophecy and you look at it again you'll probably not remember every detail but you ought to just simply realize this that God and his salvation and that plan not accidental I mean, you read through the whole of Scripture, and we start in Genesis 3 and verse 15, the promise of one who's going to defeat Satan, crush his head, and bring a rescue that mankind didn't deserve. It's promised in Genesis 3.15, and you go to the end of your Bible in Revelation chapter 22, where you have individuals who are enjoying the glorious presence of God, and you say, how did they get there? It wasn't by accident. 
God has providentially worked so that his son would be at the proper place at the proper of time. In fact, Galatians chapter 4 describes it this way, that in the fullness of time, at the right time, Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law. He came right when he was supposed to in human events. And the human events that we see going on now will ultimately accumulate in the fact that the son will come back a second time. There will be a judgment, but God will bring those that are followers of him to be with him forever. And so as you read that statement, out of Egypt I have called my son, you ought to simply say this, this is something that God has been planning for and working for and he's been delivering and rescuing and it's not accidental, but he has had a plan that his son would be right where he needed him to be at the right time to be able to save individuals like you. Lord, we thank you we thank you for passages of Scripture like this that make us have to work sometimes and think through certain things and why certain things are there, but we can't get away from the fact of the, the major story here that you wanted to rescue individuals like us. And that uh, Christ uh, suffered in this life difficulties not only on the cross but before that he suffered difficulties but it was part of your plan for our rescue and so may we never get to the point where we think that uh, our salvation is something cheap haphazard not all that important no it's it's been on your mind for generations In fact, for eternity, this has been part of your goal, the salvation of individuals through your Son. So may we recognize in the Christmas story today that uh, we have been given a great story, but it's a great story because of the great God that's behind it and working to make the ends be what they need to be. So Lord, we delight in who you are. We thank you for your son, you rescuing him in his life to get him to the point where he needed to be in order to die in our place. And we thank you for that. We praise you in the name of your son. Amen.